Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. Hey, I am the uh, host for the Multi-Faith Matters Podcast, and I'm privileged today to have as my guest someone whose work that I've uh, found intriguing and followed for, for a number of years. Uh, Catherine Wessinger, am I pronouncing your last name correctly, Doctor? That's exactly right. All yes. right. Uh, I've got a bio for you here. It says that you are the Reverend H. James Yamauchi S.J. Uh, Professor of the History of Religion at Loyola University, New Orleans. She is co-director of the Loyola Himalaya Adventure Summer Institute in Dharamsala, India program. Her primary research and teaching areas are women in religion, new religious movements, and Tibetan and Indian religions. Her articles and journals and chapters and edited books include History of Religions and Theoretical Treatments of Women in Religion, Millennialism, New Religious Movements, and Religion and Violence. Since 2000, Dr. Wessinger has served as co-general editor of Nova Religio, the Journal of Alternative and Emergent Religions published by the University of California Press. Dr. Wessinger, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Well, I'm uh, pleased to have you here today. What we're going to do is uh, unpack. You wrote a great article. Um, if uh, folks who are in my audience aren't looking at religion dispatches, I would encourage them to do so. It's a great uh, treatment of religion as it manifests itself, particularly in popular culture. And you did an article in July with the title, Cult is an Inaccurate, Unhelpful, and Dangerous Label for Followers of Trump, QAnon, and 1-6, or the, the insurrection at the Capitol. And uh, we're going to unpack that today. But before we, we dive into that particular content, I always like to begin on a personal note with my guests. How did you develop a personal and professional and academic interest in the subject matter that you pursue? Well, okay. I grew up in Columbia, South Carolina, and my background is Lutheran. And when I attended um, the University of South Carolina as an undergraduate, I had the opportunity to travel to India. And uh, that sparked my interest. At the time, I was a what back then was called a fine arts major. And so I graduated with a fine arts major, but I ended up with a minor in religious studies. And so after I got out into the work world for a couple of years and found that you know, it's a little harder to make a living uh, with a fine arts degree. So I went to graduate school at University of Iowa and uh, earned my PhD in uh, at the University of Iowa in the history of religions. Fantastic. Well, you you do great work. And uh, like I said, I've appreciated it and look forward to helping. Yeah. Actually, I'll add one thing. Yeah. yeah, when I was at the University of Iowa, I was focusing on the study of the religions of India. But I also... Uh, took courses in the history of Christianity oh. and I took a qualifier exam in the history of Christianity. So that's why once my interest was uh, sparked by uh, millennial movements and the question of millennialism and violence, I found that my courses in the history of Christianity have served me well. So just so people don't think that, well, okay, here's somebody who studied religions of India trying to talk about Christianity. I do have an ac academic background in the history of Christianity, but I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm definitely not a Bible scholar. Yeah, okay? well, we certainly don't need to be for the purposes of our conversation yeah. here. 
Um, again, that article of yours in Religion Dispatches uh, caught my, uh, my attention. And we're going to talk today about problems with the use of the word cult, that whole concept, and then something that I had not uh, heard of before, but you make application to our current context in terms of QAnon and so on, Euro-American nativist millennial movements, which are, are just fascinating. Uh, let's begin with uh, the cult term and concept. Uh, mm -hmm. We see it applied quite a bit in popular media. Mm -hmm. I've seen it applied to uh, to Trump followers. Mm -hmm. um, it's applied to certain new religious movements. It's, it's fascinating. Uh, years ago, I really kind of got started academically in the study of new religious movements. And I kind of thought that I had put that on the shelf. It's still of interest, but um, there, there really wasn't the interest like there was in the 80s, particularly in Christian circles. But it seems like it's coming back. There are so-called documentaries on a number of shows on cults, and we're going back and looking at Jonestown and Waco, and we're applying the cult term to a number of contemporary uh, political movements and so on. Why do you find the term uh, and the concept itself problematic? Well, uh, the word cult, as it's used today, is problematic because it dehumanizes people. You know, it, it's, it's, it, it's a stigma. If anybody is calling another group a cult, they intend for it to be a pejorative term and a stigma. And when you're applying a pejorative term to any person or group, that dehumanizes them. And that's problematic, especially if, if law enforcement agents have that attitude toward members of a group, there can be a tragic outcome, such as we saw with the Branch Davidians um, outside Waco, Texas. So really the the situation involving the Branch Davidians and, and also the media coverage of the Branch Davidian case is what uh, led me into further studies about questions of uh, religion and media and how religions are depicted in media. And it's actually a very dangerous situation if a government is labeling a group a cult or a word similar to cult, okay? So for instance, in Europe, the pejorative word is sect, you know, in the, in the romance languages. And I think France and Belgium, they have lists of sects, you know, S-E-C-T. Mm -hmm. And religions, Christian religions that we would consider part of the mainstream Christian culture here in the United States end up being put on their list of sects. And then the people are persecuted uh, in, in those countries. It's even more dangerous in the People's Republic of China, which of course is governed by the Chinese Communist Party. And um, there, if they feel there is a religious movement that is gaining too many members, it looks like it's too popular, it's threatening to pull people away from their allegiance to the Chinese Communist Party, the government there will list it as what in the, in the language is called Zhijiao, which means hetero, heterodox, um, religion or heterodox sect, heterodox views, heterodox teachings, which is really weird to have a communist party, which is atheist, determining what are true teachings or not in terms of religion. It's a very weird situation. But when they translate it into English, they most often translate it as, quote, evil cult. And then, and then the government arrests people, persecutes them, puts them in prisons, there are all sorts of accounts of horrible things that happen to people in the prisons. And of course, you know, those of us on the outside, we can't fact check those allegations because the People's Republic of China, you're not, you know, independent reporters are not permitted to go in. So I would say it's very dangerous for any government to call a group a sect 
or, or cult or Zhijiao or whatever the pejorative term is because it dehumanizes them. And then either the government or the law enforcement agents might feel justified in taking aggressive actions against the group. You know, back in the early Christian movement, they didn't, they weren't using the word cult at the time. Okay. I like that. The word cult originally just meant uh, worship. And, and at that time, the worship was directed toward Roman gods, you know, and early Christians were considered to be unpatriotic for not worshiping the emperor, not worshiping the Roman gods. And so it's very clear that if they, there had been a negative term, such as cult uh, at that time, Christ, the earliest Christians would have been called that pejorative term. I've heard some who've tried to justify the use of the term, like uh, I used to be many years ago, part of the evangelical counter cult community, mm -hmm. which uses kind of this apologetic worldview annihilation kind of approach. And there would be an attempt to justify it and say, well, we're not using it pejoratively, we're using it descriptively. But as I've come back to assess that over the years, isn't there a degree of reductionism and, and even intellectual laziness in that you're taking diverse religions, everything from a, a branch Davidians to a Falun Gong, and mm -hmm. you're applying a similar, a same label and, and uh, concept to very diverse types of, of religious groups. So isn't there a whole lot going on, a whole lot of assumptions wrapped up in the use of that term? Well, it is. And uh, so thank you for bringing that up. So yes, the countercult movement is, uh, it comes out of evangelical Christianity and it's, and it's based on theology. Okay. So it's a theological judgment that the, the, the evangelical Christians and the countercult movement say we have the correct theology, but everyone else has the wrong theology, the heterodox theology. And we're going to, and we call them a cult. Once I, someone showed me a world religions textbook written from a countercult perspective and all the religious traditions that I teach about in a religions of the world course, they were all labeled as cults. And, and, and I promise you everything in that textbook was incorrect. You know, it's just inaccurate. So, um, so yeah, it's, so from the countercult perspective, it's inaccurate to label everything a cult that whose theology you don't like. And basically it's in a, it's in a competitive context. You know, they're competing, they're in the marketplace competing for, um, believers. Okay. And so your competitors are labeled whether we're cult, but then you also have an anti-cult movement, which mm -hmm. tends to be more secular. You have more people in psychology, psychotherapy, so on. They tend to gravitate to the anti-cult point of view. And, but there, they use the word and they use the term cult also in a, in a pretty seriously reductive and simplistic way which can pose a danger for members uh, who are belong to religious groups because they've been stigmatized. And I'm not saying that some groups don't cause harm, you know, but, and that's another objection that I have to the use of the word cult is that when people are insisting that only cults do harm to members, what that's, that is obscuring the fact that people, ministers, priests, so on, religious leaders of all types can do harm within their own congregations and, and the mainstream religions as we know them in America. So, um, you know, it's not, I mean, humans unfortunately are, you know, are fallible, or humans are humans and some humans do cause harm. And so I'm not defending anyone or any group 
who causes harm. Okay. But I'm saying that labeling the small groups a cult can also do harm. So therefore I think we can use better terms and scholars in the area that's come to be known as new religion studies, we'll call them new religious movements. They're not always new. Okay. So we could call them unconventional religions, alternative religions. Um, sometimes they're another way to say a new religious movement is emergent religion. They're all types of new religious movements. So that's how I got into the field was I was studying uh, religions of India. Well, if you bring, if Hindu gurus start coming over to the United States, suddenly they were counted as uh, it was a new religious movement. So that's how I ended up in this area of scholarship. What would your thoughts be about uh, the use of the term like someone like a Steve Hassan? Uh, I ran into some folks on Facebook, which is not the best forum for having uh, calm and uh, informed discussions about politics and religion. But nevertheless, I entered into the fray and they were trying to, to wrestle with uh, the negative uh, aspects of, of Trumpism, Trump followers, uh, why this intense devotion to what many see as something problematic in the culture. And Steve Hassan has a book, it refers to the cult of Trump. So it's moved, the term and the concept moves out of uh, application to certain religious groups now to political movements. Um, mm -hmm. What kind of dynamic do you see going on in something like that? Well, that's a very good question. And this is something that I'm continuing to think about. And um, I'm planning on reading his book for sure. Uh, and I've, sure, I've seen him, of course, in various documentaries. And, and just as a side, I'll say the reason we keep seeing the so-called cult documentaries is because they make money, you know, they attract viewers. And um, so that's why certain past episodes are continually being treated in um, various docu documentaries year after year. But back to um, applying the word cult to the veneration of Trump, there's no doubt that Trump is venerated by a lot of people. You could say he's even worshiped by a lot of people. He's even seen as uh, a type of Messiah. And, and in religious studies, we would take the Hebrew term Messiah and, and use that as, a, or at least the way I define the word Messiah in terms of studies of millennial movements is that a Messiah is someone who's believed to be empowered to create the collective salvation uh, that's, you know, that's, that's the goal of a particular millennial movement. And you have all types of millennial movements. So, you know, there's, there are Christians who view him as the Cyrus Messiah. There are, um, even if he's not viewed as the Cyrus Messiah, he's many Christians, I think, you know, conservative Christians, evangelical Christians, but see him as a Messiah figure who is going to make the United States a Christian nation you know, the government, a Christian government. But then you have a lot of secular people who also venerate Trump. I think that's where QAnon came in, is it with its predictions and this mysterious Q, you know, giving so-called inside information about how Trump was gonna, President Trump was gonna fight uh, the federal government, destroy the federal government from within. Uh, that's, that, that makes Trump, uh, that cast role in the, that cast Trump in the role of a kind of a secular messiah. Um, so there's no doubt that people still believe in him and they did believe in him and it's ongoing and they don't want to admit that he lost the 2020 election. 
So I think we could call that a cult of personality. But however, I've already, you know, I'm taking the position that the word cult is problematic um, for the reasons that I, I just mentioned, that I just discussed. So uh, I think I think if we start out with the term cult, it leads to sloppy analysis when it's applied to Trump and, and the movement of the several movements of people who are like diehard supporters of Trump and they, they're convinced he didn't lose the election. So, so yes, I'm gonna admit there is a cult of personality focused on him and several different types of cults of personality because they're coming in at it from different points of view. But, but if people just start out with what they imagine a cult to be, a so-called cult to be, then it's very poor analysis. And that's what I was trying to correct in my essay that was published in Religion Dispatches that you mentioned. And, and thank you for speaking so kindly of it. So what I propose in that essay is that what we saw on January 6th with the assault on the Capitol is more properly understood as a um, nativist millennial movement of white people primarily uh, some are Christians, some are not Christians. They, and some of them are diehard. I think the people who organized it are the are white supremacists. They belong to white supremacist groups. I think a lot of other Trump supporters got caught up in the moment and probably went on in. So it's not a, it's not a just, you know, a homogenous event with a homogenous type of people going in, but they're obviously all supporters of Trump. And, um, so anyway, what we saw on January 6th is, was like a high point of what I've called in the past a Euro-American nativist millennial movement, because this is part of a movement that has been ex expecting a revolution at least since the 1990s, a revolution against the federal government. And with the President Trump's encouragement, they went down and assaulted the Capitol. And they had planned, I think, as we as the investigation continues, we'll learn more about the planning of that assault. And uh, they certainly did have the intention of overturning the election, possibly killing members of Congress or uh, Vice President uh, Mike Pence. Uh, I think that, you know, the hangman's noose on the mall there was a strong indication of that. That suggests to me that uh, people who identify as sovereign citizens were there. And they're part of the Euro-American Nativist Millennial Movement. When I was studying this movement back in the 1990s, it didn't have a name. It was just a, various groups who were sort of unified by their white supremacy, and they felt oppressed by the federal government. And they had conspiracies of theories about who was running the federal government, and they were planning on overthrowing it. They were calling for the second American revolution. Nowadays, you have you know, younger people participating in this movement, they have created some of their, you know, own organizations, but the old actors are there too, like sovereign citizens and, um, you know, former militia, you know, militia members and so forth. So I think I see that as a better analysis and that will help us get to the heart of why do they do that? You know, what, 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 what was their goal? Well, they've been plant, you know, now they talk about uh, instigating a second civil war. 
So they're not talking about a revolutionary war now, they're talking about a civil war, but the goal is the same, which is to eliminate the control of the federal government. And so that you have authority on a very local level, probably around a self-appointed sheriff. Okay, but uh, we can go on from there. Yeah, uh, one of the things that I'm interested in doing, and hopefully this program contributes to that is, I want to do the best academic work we can do to understand a given phenomenon. And then I want to try and be as respectful as possible in sharing the ways in which I might disagree and hope that we can plan intervention strategies. And unfortunately, when I see in our culture this toxic polarization and the reference to perhaps up to half of American citizens as deplorables and uh, undermine control and this kind of thing. I just don't think it's helpful, one, in understanding the challenges we face, and secondly, plotting some solutions about the way forward and persuading others of a, a different and perhaps better way forward. So uh, can you go a little deeper in what are the fears, the concerns that folks who might be a part of this nativist millennial movement that they might have that we need to understand if we want to really come to grips with what happened on January 6th? Well, I tell you, let me, first I'll give you a definition. I'll give you a couple of definitions, okay? So uh, millennialism is an academic term, you know, derived from the book of Revelation, the word millennium, the 1000 year reign of Christ on earth. But, but scholars take the term millennialism to refer to a belief in an imminent transition to a collective salvation, a salvation for a group of people. And then, you know, there are various types of, millennial beliefs. You know, some millennialists believe that it'll be uh, God's kingdom on earth, or it might be a collective salvation in heaven. It might be a little bit of both, for instance, with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay. So people have different ideas about what the collective salvation is. There's, there are also secular millennial movements like uh, the communist revolutions uh, and, you know, the Russia and China. Their, they, their aim has been to set up a their idea of a perfect society, you know, according to Marxism or Maoism or whatever the ideology is. And so there's no, there's no God or superhuman agent in that scenario. But so you could have a secular type of millennial types of millennialism as well. But it's a belief that there's going to be an imminent transition to a collective salvation. And that collective salvation will either be on earth or in heaven or both. And it can come about in various ways. It can come about, um, through divine intervention. It can come about uh, by humans working together according to a divine will and a divine plan to try to make the world better and create God's kingdom on earth. Um, the transition could be catastrophic, you know, like the whole scenario in the book of Revelation is very catastrophic. Or there are millennialists who believe in progress. And, uh, you know, again, Christians who believe that if there were you know, working in society according to God's plan to create uh, Christ's kingdom on earth, that's, that's been called post-millennialism. You know, you create God's kingdom on earth and then Jesus Christ returns. So there, there's all sorts of varieties of millennial scenarios, but then you have a nativist millennial movement. And in a nativist millennial movement, you have a population of people who feel under attack and oppressed by a foreign colonizing government. And so they began to hope for a collect, an imminent transition to a collective salvation. 
And in nativist millennialism, they want to have a, a, they want to experience a salvation that here on earth that takes them back to their idealized past way of life, the way they imagine it was, the way they remember it was, you know, through, you know, rose tinted lenses. And uh, so, but nevertheless, you know, nativist millennialism is a religion, it's a response of people who feel oppressed. A lot of times they are oppressed. Uh, however, uh, a lot of times conspiracies get in, conspiracy theories are promoted to convince people that they're oppressed when perhaps they're not, okay? So scholars are accustomed to seeing nativist millennial movements among people around the world who've been oppressed by European colonialism. You know, every place you've had white colonialism, you've had uh, nativist millennial movements. And sometimes those people will identify, you know, they're introduced to the Christian Bible and they read about the, the enslavement of the Israelites in Egypt and then how God intervened and freed, you know, directed Moses to lead the people out of slavery. And so the whole Exodus story um, is an inspiration to them and they might begin to identify themselves with these ancient Israelites. They might start to think they are the Israelites. So that's happened all over the world. So what was happening in the United States, uh, first of all, in um, beginning in the 1970s, farmers were encouraged by the government to take out loans, you know, large loans to, to expand their farms, run their farms. But then by, I think, the 1980s, suddenly the Federal Reserve uh, increased the interest rate and uh, taxes were increased and farmers couldn't pay their loans and they couldn't, they couldn't pay their taxes. And so they were having their farms repossessed. They were losing their sacred land. Their sacred way of life was being destroyed. You know, that, that farming um, independence was, was being destroyed. And then also in small towns, you had business owners who had businesses related to farming. Okay, so they definitely felt oppressed and they identified their own federal government as that oppressor, that colonizer, if you will. But, uh, but then you get uh, conspiracy theories that say, well, the federal government is actually controlled by Jews. And so then it becomes highly anti-Semitic. And it's, um, and you know, someone coined the term Zionist occupation government or Zog. And so they're saying that's who really controls our government. And so, so you began to get different actors, mainly um, white people, mainly white people who felt they were losing ground economically. And uh, especially as American culture is, is or, or as people of color in American culture are having, gaining more opportunities, you know, more economic opportunities even if you know, we know everything's not equal across the board, but, but people of color have more access to education, more access to employment, even though it's very uneven, okay? So that has made some white people feel very insecure. And, and then they're drawn to different groups in what I, in the 1990s called the Euro-American Nativist Millennial Movement, because they were, these people were in the mo various movements, they were interacting with each other 
one primary place they were interacting with each other was in um, at gun shows. But now they interact with each other online, <laughs> you know, social media, all sorts of social social media, and they may find ways to meet together and form small groups. But if they're really, and some of them are deadly serious about attacking the federal government. And so they've learned in the intervening years to meet in very small groups and, and just keep it very limited who they're going to tell if they're gonna plan some sort of action. And so what I saw on January 6th was a continuation of that. You had some new groups like uh, the Proud Boys uh, and others, uh, but you know the old old ideas are there. I, recently, I read an article. You know the this uh, anti-Semitic and racist form of Christianity called Christian identity. Mm-hmm. You know, back in the eighties and nineties, you had Christian identity communities, communes. All right. Well, by the end of the nineties those had gone pretty much gone away, but Christian identity is still present on the internet. It had, there, there are people who maintain websites and social media outlets. And so the, the racist and anti-Semitic ideas and the conspiracy theory ideas promoted in Christian identity are out there and are being absorbed by a lot of people uh, who may be just ordinary evangelical Christians or, or ordinary citizens who don't go to church, but they're picking up these racist and anti-Semitic ideas. And you could also see that on January 6th. You know, there was at least one man, I saw a photo of him. He had a sweatshirt on that alluded to the Holocaust. You know, work shall make you free. Well, that was a highly cynical uh, shirt. You know, it was, it was definitely intended to be anti-Semitic. And then, you know, people, once they got into the, um, into the Capitol building, you know, they would, somebody unfurled their Confederate uh, battle flag and they were just marching around displaying that. So the white supremacists were there, Christian identity people were there, or Christian identity influence people were there. And the sovereign citizens were there, you know, witnessed the, um, the hangman's news. They felt if they had captured a member of Congress, Nancy Pelosi, or the or uh, Vice President Mike Pence, they would have, uh, you know, convened a little sovereign citizen uh, court, tried them, convicted them, hanged them. Unfortunately, you know, the police officers who were there did defend the Capitol, and they did defend members of Congress and the Vice President. Fortunately, the great cost to themselves. There are, as you mentioned, some of them. There are a lot of moving parts, a lot of influences, and in all of this. Um, uh, would you do you see Christian nationalism uh, in the mix? Uh, that uh, I, the narrative that this was founded as a, a Christian country should always be this conflation of a political and religious identity that's very influential in many evangelical circles. Uh, do you see that playing a part in this? At least in some segments of what makes in some segments, yeah, I think so. But I feel like I'm still learning about Christian nationalism, and there have been some good books published on Christian nationalism lately. So I don't want to speak as an authority on that, especially since I'm not, I'm not hanging out in the culture. Okay, but uh, but from what I read, uh, yes, you're correct. You know that um, you know not all Christian nationalists are white supremacists because 
you know, uh, African-American people and uh, Hispanic people are uh, Christian Americans also. Okay. And so they're not going to be white supremacists, but they could be behind a Christian nationalist movement that Christianity, as they understand it, should influence the government. Okay. But uh, from what I read, there are fringe elements in Christian nationalism, or perhaps not so fringe, okay, that for me, that's yet to be determined. But at least there are fringe elements that are preparing for war, perhaps, they tend to be quiet. You know, they're not advertising it very, very much. Uh, but, uh, but they seem to be out there. And, and then, of course, you know, as you know, um, there's still plenty of white Christians who are racist. I mean, America Christians have a way to evolve on, on uh, being inclusive, more inclusive. Uh, to, to me, it was uh, fascinating during Trump's administration um, to see uh, segments of the Christian population that would have critiqued each other in the past theologically, like a Robert Jeffers on the Baptist end of things, uh, side by side with some charismatics and Pentecostals like the new apostolic reformation that I think mm -hmm. you referenced in your religion dispatches. Mm -hmm. So am I correct that, that underlying their theological differences, they're able, they're coming together and finding common ground on these nativist kinds of con and millennial concerns. Is that correct? It looks that way, or at least in the sense that they have felt and possibly still feel that president Trump, was the person to fulfill what they want to see in terms of implementing uh, laws and appointing Supreme Court justices and so forth to make the American government a Christian government. I, I do find that interesting. So, I mean, I've been interested to learn about the new apostolic reformation. Uh, a scholar by the name of Damon Berry has a good article on the new apostolic reformation in uh, the journal I co-edit Nova Religio. And, uh, and as you mentioned there, they, the new apostolic reformation is a movement primarily among Pentecostals and where you have pastors who say that they're, they are apostles or prophets. And many of them were predicting that Trump would win the, um, the, um, 2020 election. And some of them, they've had to wrestle with the failure of that prophecy. But the, so the, in terms of millennialism, the new apostolic reformation is a type of progressive, what I call progressive millennialism or in the history of Christianity, it would be termed post-millennialism. The idea that uh, Christians can keep, create the kingdom of God on earth. And after that, uh, Christ will return. And, and part of that is what's been called the seven mountains mandate or the seven mountains dominionism. And so this is a type of um, post-millennialism or progressive millennialism. But as you know, a lot of evangelical Christians have for decades been um, Christian dispensationalists, mm -hmm. which is a belief in a type of catastrophic millennialism or premillennialism, you know, that certain events have to happen on earth and Jesus Christ will come and then we'll have Armageddon and kingdom will be created on earth. And then eventually there'll be a resurrection and a judgment, all, you know, the, the whole scenario from the book of revelation, but it's interpreted in light of current events. Well, that's a different type of millennialism, but 
but they've been politically active also for decades because it's been important to Christian dispensationalists to elect a president who supports the state of Israel because the state of Israel is a key player uh, in the apocalyptic end time events. The temple, you know, according to their theology, the temple has to be rebuilt in, uh, there in Jerusalem before, the, um, before Jesus Christ will return. It's a completely different type of millennialism. It's a different, completely, it's a completely different type of um, theology, if you will. But it does seem that they are, um, you know, the Christian dispensationalists are being influenced by the new apostolic reformation with the idea that you can have a president who's going to be this Messiah figure who will uh, create the kind of government, Christian government, that uh, in evangelical circles people would like to see. It would seem to me that the kind of insights that uh, scholars like you have would be very important to the government in terms of formulating a way forward. Have you or any of your academic colleagues been able to have any input in to understanding uh, events like uh, one six? Well, I'll just, uh, that I don't know, but uh, I do know that, um, um, yes, you know, certain agencies uh, in the government law enforcement agencies do consult scholars. Very often they will consult scholars or they'll get names of scholars through the um, American Academy of Religion. And uh, early on, say in the 90s, I was involved in some of those conversations but I haven't been in those, uh, involved in those conversations since then, partly by my choice and partly um, you know, due to some things I've written that are critical of the FBI. I mean, I understand they don't wanna invite, they don't wanna talk to me, but I hope they, I hope they read what I write. <laughs> sure, <laughs> hopefully so. Uh, yeah. I'd like to end this conversation on a positive note, rather we've talked mm -hmm. a lot about a, a lot of negative kinds of things that unfortunately we're wrestling with in our culture right now. Um, rather than labeling uh, a large segment of our population as cultists and brainwashed and deplorables and all of this, what would some suggestions be about a more positive way forward to try and understand? Uh, perception is everything, right? Whether or not uh, folks are really experiencing the kinds of challenges and things that, that is motivating them, how can we understand them better and be more sympathetic in trying to navigate a way forward? Yeah, that's, that's a hard question. Yeah, especially right now, because things are so polarized. And I think what's complicating it is the different media sources, you know, the different information sources. So, you know, what approximately 50% of the American population thinks is true, the other 50% of the population thinks is pretty much fantasy. So that's, that's a serious complication, but we do need to listen to each other. And we also need to um, study about each other's point of view. And, and that starts with listening. Um, but you can't, I mean, it's very clear. You can't make people with strong convention, convictions change their minds. And, uh, and the, the advice that I've seen given to family members who's, who have other family members caught up in QAnon, for instance, is don't try to change their minds because they're not, they're going to have to come to the conclusion to them, themselves that 
the QAnon conspiracy theories are inadequate uh, to describe reality. Um, but just be there, you know, maintain um, your family or friendship connections if you can. And, um, and just let them know that you'll be there to listen to, to them and be their friend or their, their relative whenever they're ready. On the other hand, you know, some individuals might be threatening people of another point of view, in which case I think you just have to, you know, you have to distance yourself uh, out of self-protection. But um, so I applaud you and what you're doing. I mean, you're undertaking an, uh, an educational effort here. And, and I think that's great. So you're, you're making a contribution. I'm trying to make a contribution on my end through uh, in my courses to encourage students to uh, uh, critically evaluate sources of information and how to really do research, you know, not just do an internet search, but you know, how to, how to assess who is an expert on a topic and who's not. <laughs> and, 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 and how do you determine, um, you know, what a valid source of information is. And, you know, I've been critical of um, the major media corporations or so-called mainstream media also. They're not perfect, okay. And I think I've recently decided, you know, it's better to, instead of calling them the mainstream media, because that's become a pejorative word, mm -hmm. pejorative term. Uh, I think we just have to acknowledge that there are major media corporations and they take different perspectives um, because they're addressing a different audience. Mm -hmm. Their ad revenues, you know, their, their, their whole funding comes from a different segment of the American public. And uh, so I think it's really important to encourage people to think critically about media sources and, um, and just dig to see, you know, who, who is at least trying to report what's accurate uh, or who is actually spewing propaganda. So well, I don't um, know if that's a good yeah, answer, yeah. but <laughs> well, I, think it's weird. I think you and I have solved the nation's problems just <laughs> Uh, no, I, yeah, I, I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but I just thought it would be helpful to get some some considerations about how we move forward. It just seems like we're we're locked in this us versus them political tribalism. And uh, when I try and have conversations within my own tribe, I, I have one foot in as a as somewhat trustworthy insider, and yet because I'm raising critique and questions, I'm also questionable as well. So it's it's a difficult place to be in so it uh, is yeah. so i applaud you for your work well thank that's you. important yeah I, uh, I appreciate you coming on the program and making the time i hope you write more for religion dispatches and, okay. uh, and other publications i think it's important to take uh your great academic research and the, the things that you're discovering and to, to package that so that uh, people who who don't engage the academy can benefit from it so okay it's fantastic. So, All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. My guest, again, has been Catherine Wessinger, and uh, you will find uh, a link to her work, including the Religion Dispatches article on the program notes. I would encourage everybody to seek it out. It is well worth your time. Again, I'm John Moorhead, uh, the host of the Multi-Faith Matters podcast. Thank you for watching and for listening. Until next okay. time.